Well, good evening and welcome. Uh, for those of you who are visiting the University of Portland for the first time, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, my name is Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we uh, direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life in American Culture, um, where we, I think we both believe we have the best job on campus, um, getting people gathered together to listen to wise people, provocative people, um, people with interesting ideas, uh, because all of us are smarter than one of us, and, mm. and that is uh, what we are going to be enjoying tonight. We also believe that all of us are smarter than one of us, so we are thrilled to be partnering with uh, the Department of Social Work. Uh, everybody I met here tonight said, I'm here because of Alice Gates. So I really want to thank our friend Alice Gates um, for putting this together. Um, not everybody knows that our social work program at the University of Portland is called the Dorothy Day Social Work Program. And one of our ambitions, her, her birthday is November 8th, and one of our ambitions in the Garavena Center is to have an annual celebration of the legacy of Dorothy Day, and that's what that's what tonight is all about. A couple brief bits of housekeeping before we dive into that. Um, if you are a teacher of any uh, level in any district anywhere, uh, and would like some professional development units for being here tonight. We have a sign-up sheet over, uh, on the table in the back. Kevin, if you would raise your hand. You don't have to know about PDU. But the sign-up sheet is over there. And if you just sign your name and email, those will be in your inbox uh, tomorrow at no cost to you. And we're happy to do that. That's actually true of all of the programs that we do in the Garaventa Center. So uh, if you like what you hear tonight, and I'm quite positive that you will, uh, go ahead and take our calendar because uh, we're, we're ready to go for spring as well. Um, we're actually kind of winding down this semester, so I don't have coming attractions to tell you, but I do know that um, you're going to feel fired up at the end of this talk. You're going to want to do something to scrape some crud off of this blessed and bruised world. And uh, another one of our partners is Catholic Charities. And Hannah, where are you? Hannah is here with materials um, to that, that describe a little bit some of the efforts that Catholic Charities are doing in the neighborhood to combat um, the, the problem of homelessness. And Hannah and Sarah, I would imagine, are uh, happy to engage you uh, in conversation afterwards. So we'll have a little bit of time for some group questions and answers, and then um, generous folks are gonna stick around afterwards uh, to engage in more conversation if you have them. Father Charlie, is there anything else I need to say before? No, nope, not at all. Okay, well we're having a birthday party, right? So that's why we have cupcakes to celebrate uh, Dorothy Day's birthday, and what, what I'm calling a reverse birthday card, which I hope you got, um, our Honor Society from the Social Work Department, the students in the Honor Society, um, pulled some of their favorite quotes from Dorothy Day, and we put them all in one place because, because we live in a fallen world, and sometimes you need a booster shot of joy and hope and inspiration, and that's one of the things that we hope uh, this, this kind of reverse birthday card uh, will serve for you. And we printed a bunch of extra ones if you'd like to take some back to your parish, back to a classroom, back to an agency, you're welcome to do that because um, Dorothy had lots, uh, 
wants to say, uh, even though she might have been saying it in 1927, it's absolutely relevant today. So um, that's what this is all about. That's why we're having cupcakes instead of cookies. And um, when Dorothy Day co-founded Catholic Worker Movement, she had two goals. One was she looked around at a bruised, battered world, and there was so much healing to do and so many marginalized people. And she said, one of the things we absolutely have to do, the gospel absolutely mandates, is that we take care of the needs of those who are bruised and on the margins. But that is not enough. She was absolutely emphatic that equally important uh, in the Catholic worker movement and maybe particularly relevant in a university social work program is the idea that we must use every gift and talent and capacity we have to get at the roots of what makes people poor and hungry and on the margins and challenge those systems and, and use, use the gifts at our disposal to turn those things around. And uh, Linda Plitt Donaldson, our speaker for tonight, is a spiritual daughter of Dorothy Day. Um, she started out in computer science and found her way into social work almost accidentally and was immediately organizing, um, organizing people. And she's the only person I know who went into a doctoral program out of frustration. Um, she really was not happy with, with uh, the, the state of so many social service agencies just doing their best, spending their, their lifeblood feeding people soup and putting band-aids on problems, and she really wants social workers to be formed in the idea of advocacy and systemic change and asking big scary questions and asking them again and keep knocking on the door when, um, when, when the door is shut in their face. And that's what she has spent a career doing. Uh, she now serves as Uber Dean, I mean, Associate Dean at James Madison University where she oversees not just a whole division of academic programs related to social services and human flourishing, but a, a center that, that um, services 17 or so different um, outreach organizations. And if you know anything about higher ed or organization to begin with, that's a lot of balls in the air, and uh, she's going to be sharing some of the fruits of those labors. Uh, she embodies, I think, just about every quote on our reverse birthday card, but the two that really uh, sum up Linda Plitt Donaldson are, we must talk about poverty because people insulated by their own comfort lose sight of it. And the final word is love. Please join me in welcoming Linda Foot Donaldson. Thank you so much, Karen. That's such a generous uh, introduction. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you today. Thank you. Um, I feel honored and privileged to be invited to give a talk about Dorothy Day, who uh, I'm not a Dorothy Day scholar. You should know that I'm not a Dorothy Day scholar. Probably many of you have read many of the writings of Dorothy Day, her books. Um, for her, her essays, maybe you subscribe to the Catholic Worker newspaper. Um, so Dorothy Day has been a beacon in my life. 
she, I have been a, a reader of all of her things, an admirer of her work, a follower of the Catholic Worker Movement, a visitor to the Catholic Worker House in D.C., taking my children there uh, to learn more about this work. Um, my, I'm a social worker by discipline. Um, I, another, so, so I'm a social worker, um, and I guess I should also say that uh, when I was discerning whether I should become a married person and vocation or a Catholic sister, which was always kind of a lifelong tug, I took Dorothy Day's, one of her books, with me to Africa for five weeks. And um, after my, the end of my discernment trip, you could tell by my wedding band, <laughs> but I, I determined uh, I'm not Dorothy Day. You know, I can't be Dorothy Day. I can't, uh, you know, uh, that was a very humbling experience. And of course, God didn't want me to be Dorothy Day. He wanted me to be Linda. So, um, but Dorothy Day, her life resonates so much with me. And the person that she is always resonated so much with me. And I thought that we had, um, we both went into the field of helping people who were homeless. We both went into the field of standing up for justice. Um, and we both, I think, had motivations that came from similar places. So Dorothy Day, and some of you know all of this, this, this talk is really going to be about the life of Dorothy Day, the integration of Catholic social teaching as an animation, right, an animation for our work for justice, um, and then what does this mean for ending homelessness in the United States, um, and, and really anywhere. But Dorothy Day was a natural-born justice seeker, right? When she was in high school, I mean, she had the intuition, she had the, um, the sensitivity in high school to see the wounds of the world. You know, I always think about, whenever I hear every year at Mass, uh, Thomas touching the wounds of Christ, what I don't think about is, oh, doubting Thomas. I think about God showing his wounds and inviting Thomas to see his wounds, and his wounds are the wounds of the world, right? So that, to me, when I hear that reading, I'm always thinking about what wounds am I not opening my eyes to? What wounds am I not opening my, uh, my ears to, my heart to? And Dorothy Day had a natural sensitivity for seeing the wounds of the world and getting angry. <laughs> right? And anger is an important emotion, right? It shouldn't be the, um, the one that, that grounds you. You have to have come from a deeper well, otherwise anger will burn you out. But she was angry, and she wanted to do something about this. And her way of expressing her sense of injustice was through, primarily in her early life, journalism. She was, she was born in 1897. Um, so she's in high school and beginning college in the early you know, 1910s, 19, you know, mid-19s. Um, and, and actually, for how many social work students? Any social work students in the room? So what's really interesting about Dorothy Day's sort of life and growing up is she's growing up at the same time as the social work profession is growing up, right? Jane Addams, Mary Richmond, seeing um, the impact of industrialization on the world, the chronic poverty, unemployment, you know, as we move more into the, the uh, Great Depression time. 
um, the conditions, right, of, of communities, of housing, those kinds of experiences. And from the Catholic perspective, Raro Navaram, so the beginning of modern Catholic social teaching is happening in uh, Pope Leo XIII, writing that first encyclical about the condition of labor. And then if you're Catholic, really steeped in all this Catholic teaching stuff, like, um, like Karen and I and many others of you are, you've read all these encyclicals that seem to come out on the anniversary of Rome Navarum, so it's not just the papal documents, but the bishop's documents. Well, Dorothy Day, she's growing up and deepening her commitment to serving people who are poor during this time. So all of these things are going together. Dorothy Day also was very inspired by the muckrakers like Upton Sinclair, right, the jungle, writing about the meat packing plants and the conditions of workers. And she said, this is how I want to use my, my, uh, my voice, is to write about the injustices, to expose, shine a light on what's happening in communities. And she drops out of college and goes to New York, and then she's able to work with organizations on exposing, she had a particular concern about workers. She, you know, without becoming a, a, without really knowing early on Marxist theory, she had an innate sense of what an unbridled capitalist system could do to harm workers, right? Sort of the predatory practices. She had an innate sense of what she called the dirty, rotten system, right? And what that can do. To, uh, to workers who are um, alienated from their work. You know, in Catholic social teaching, we talk about human beings being the subjects of their lives, not the objects, right? We are subjects of our lives, and uh, work should be providing dignity, right, and purpose. And uh, so she had this whole analysis and then joined with others in New York that shared that analysis, and... Uh, and she, um, she not only wrote about it, but she also put her feet, she showed up. She protested with her feet and she joined workers on the picket lines at strikes. She was a peace activist. Um, she went to jail, right, for women's, for suffrage. You know, she's also at the time of women's suffrage, right? So that's part of the dirty, rotten system that doesn't allow women to vote, right? So, um, She's, she's a justice seeker, and I, in my own uh, a feeble way, uh, I'm also a I was also, I think, born a, a justice seeker, um, and somebody, not like Dorothy Day, I'm just saying what, what about her resonated with me, um, but uh, I never had the clarity at the early age that she had, um, so I basically, and I'm still doing it at the age of 52, muddling my way through um, fights for justice and trying to spark new channels for justice seeking in our communities. Dorothy Day, another thing that really resonated with me about Dorothy Day was her deep, you know, deeply spiritual, she's a deeply spiritual person. And even before she converted to Catholicism in 1927, she already had a sense of, of God, of God's presence in the world. And I think one of the things that attracted her, attracted her to the Catholic Church um, was our teaching, our faith's teaching about God's indwelling presence in the world. 
that, um, that God is made manifest in each of us. And uh, so, so she, she felt strongly the greatest commandment, to love God with your mind, soul, and strength, and also to love your neighbor as God loves you, right? So she, and then as she, she converted to Catholicism in 1927, and then developed a set of spiritual practices and was very disciplined in adhering to these practices of daily mass, uh, daily readings, a couple of hours with scripture or spiritual readings. She had a spiritual director. Um, all of these things are really important to have when you're trying to um, read and understand scripture is to do that in community, right? Otherwise, it can be distorted, right? You, your, even your own call could be distorted. You must, you mean, you must read these things with others because uh, then otherwise there's, you know, there's a real caution with trying to do these interpretations all by yourself. Or we get in the way. We get in the way sometimes of God using us and helping us understand. Um, so let's see. Yeah, so she had a very strong connection to her faith. The other thing is that, that attracted her to the church is she saw the church as a play, a church of the poor, a church of the dispossessed, while at the same time also seeing a church of the wealthy and a church of the privileged. And she was able, she was somebody who could hold the paradox, the hypocrisy, the messiness of the human condition at the same time. She could stand in that tension, that tension that existed very strongly in the church back then, and that still, that, that um, still exists in the church today, the paradox, the hypocrisy, right? All of that is still present just as much today, but she was able to hold that because really that's how we all are, right? All of us are paradoxes. All of us have darkness and light. All of us have good and bad. So we must be able, that's an important skill to cultivate. Um, let's see. So when Dorothy Day, uh, she was, you know, she wrote for Commonweal magazine. These are all still great magazines. Commonweal, American magazine. Um, she was writing for them from time to time, and she had come down to D.C. from New York to cover the Hunger March for the Unemployed. This is 19th, December of 1932. She came down to the Hunger March for the Unemployed, and while she was there, she was there during the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and she went to... Oh, I don't have to walk over here. I've got the clicker. Oh, gosh, I'm going the wrong way. She went to Catholic University. Actually, she went to the Shrine. Has anybody been to the Shrine here? I worked at Catholic for 16 years. That's where I was before uh, this, this summer is when I moved to my new position at James Madison University. So I was at Catholic University for, for 16 years. So Dorothy Day went over there on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. She went downstairs into the crypt. If you've done your, your uh, tour of the shrine, you go downstairs to the crypt church. 
and she asked for guidance and advice. And I just want to read, I wrote down exactly what she asked for. She asked that some way would be opened up for her to work for the poor and the oppressed. So even in the midst of already living kind of a precarious life as a journalist, right? I mean, that was not a stable life, especially for a woman, right? She uprooting herself, moved to New York, working on these issues, working as a journalist, still not feeling she was doing enough for the poor and the oppressed and asking for help. She goes home after she covers the march and somebody is waiting for her, Peter Morin who's the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. He's waiting for her at her apartment because he wants to talk to her about this vision for a great movement that, uh, that he wants to get started. And the way he heard about Dorothy Day is he was friends with the editor of Commonweal Magazine. And he was telling the editor all these stories about what he, you know, that all oh, the church's teachings are so phenomenal. People need to embrace them. People need to be, they need to be made accessible to people. And if they were, then people would be open to open their hearts and their homes and care for people, our brothers and sisters in need. Um, and we should also have farms have agricultural communities where people can work hard on the land and just that connection to the land is so good for our souls. And the Commonweal editor was like, you know, I'm really busy. He didn't seem really busy. He said, well, you know what? You should go talk to Dorothy Day because the two of you seem to have um, some things in common. So he does. He goes right over and waits for her. She gets there. There's Peter Mara and he tells her about this vision. And he says it has three parts. I already told you, so, so let me see. He says, with this movement, we've got to have three components. The first one is a newspaper. We have to have a newspaper because that's the way we can make the Catholic faith, all these different ideas that are being promulgated, the radical teachings of the gospel, accessible. We must have a newspaper. Number two, we have to have houses of hospitality, and I am positive the bishops will invest. They will put money up. I'm glad you know that that's not what happened. But he was like, this is a no-brainer. We can have a house of hospitality in every diocese. And the whole idea about the farms he shared with her as well. So Dorothy's listening to this guy who's filled with passion, and she's thinking, well, I can do a newspaper. Right? This is what I was born to do. I was called to be a journalist. This I can do. So within five months, the first newspaper, oh, I keep, I'm not used to having a clicker. I keep going to go back. The first newspaper of the Catholic worker, oh, it's not showing up. Um, so I'll go back to the shrine. <laughs> it's a better, I'm going to go back to Peter and, and Dorothy. Um, the, Catholic Worker News, the first issue of the Catholic Worker newspaper was published on May 1st, 1933. And um, so 1933, we're in the midst of the Great Depression, right? So that we, again, as I was describing, massive unemployment, um, massive poverty. Some of the writers for the Catholic Worker newspaper are unemployed men primarily. So she um, <coughs> lets them stay at the Catholic worker offices because they don't really have a place to stay. And while they are um, living there, 
they, they always make sure, Dorothy always makes sure that there is coffee and soup on the stove for anybody who's hungry. So word gets out, there's coffee and soup on the stove, and soon the Catholic worker had a soup kitchen. Right, and there are pictures, and I uh, neglected to put one of those pictures in, of the Catholic worker house with the soup line, right, going around the, the side. And then Peter Morin sends a letter to the bishops saying, hey, you all need to start these houses of hospitality. You know, this is living the gospel. You need to start investing in this. And the word gets out. People start hearing that the bishops are going to have these houses of hospitality. And people start showing up at the Catholic worker, wondering if they can get a room. And what does Dorothy Day do? She starts running rooms for people. With the modest, you know, not infinite. She doesn't have infinite resources, but whatever she has, she starts running rooms for folks in New York. <clears throat> and you have St. Joseph's House. We have Mary House. And these are some of the first Catholic worker shelters. That's really the first Catholic housing first program for the, for the homeless scholars in the room. <clears throat> That's like a housing first program. We're going to talk about housing first a little bit later on. <clears throat> so... What an incredible legacy, right? The Catholic Worker newspaper still is in circulation. It still costs one penny an issue, right? And it has hundreds of thousands of readers to this day. And there are, I looked this up, 178 Catholic Worker communities across the United States to this day and 29 in other countries. So what an incredible Incredible legacy that Dorothy Day is leaving has for us. So, let's see. So the title of the talk tonight is Walking with Two Feet of Love. Now this comes, this expression of the two feet of love in action comes right out of our, the Catholic faith tradition. And can somebody guess what the two feet of love in action is, or can somebody say what that is? Yeah, that's right. Charity and advocacy, right? So, you know, charitable works, meeting the basic needs of individuals, and addressing the root causes. For the social work students in the room, does this sound familiar? I'm hoping it does. If it doesn't, when Karen talked about me going back to uh, get my PhD out of frustration, it was because when I was a social worker working with people who were homeless, when, when I was out, you know, testifying with the people I serve, rallying, having candlelight vigils for all the people who died who were homeless that year, um, you know, fighting for more affordable housing, all the things that we fought for all those many years, and then my social workers worked with us, you know, with the people they served. Where were they? So I would start asking them, hey, or I'd call them ahead of time. Hey, you coming down? You know, are you coming down to the city council? Are you coming, you know, uh, are you going to testify? Are you bringing your folks? Are they going to testify and talk about their experiences? Oh, I'm so busy, Linda. I've got, I've got so many people. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. They're social workers. We walk with two feet of love. We don't hop, you know. We actually walk with two feet of love. And that's the primary reason I went back 
for my PhD because I wanted to start socializing social workers. I wanted that to be a social worker. We're not psychologists. I love psychologists. But we're social workers. We do different things, right? We do different things. So I did that, and also part of it was about to help nonprofit organizations. Nonprofits. They have all this fear about getting involved in social change work. But here they are working with the experts of the social issues of our times. I'm talking about the people who use those services or the experts on homelessness, on poverty, on addiction, on mental health. They know the answers. And what are they doing? They're not, they're not, some of them are, some of them are. But anyway, that was part of my thing with social work and, and social service agencies that aren't sharing their experience and, and, uh, and helping people. So, um, we walk with two feet of love. That's the, and this echoes, right? Just this sort of speaks to, um, you know, the justice calls from the, the Hebrew prophets and Jesus in his first public ministry unrolling the scroll from Isaiah, right? And saying that God has sent me you know, Jesus is saying, God has sent me to bring good news to the poor. This is the justice to set the oppressed free, liberty to the captives, breaking the chains of the bounds that are holding you back, right? Um, and then the last judgment of nations, right? That's the works of mercy. That's the service piece, right? Feeding the hungry, clothing the homeless, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick, visiting the prisoner, and so on, right? So this comes right out of our faith tradition. And this is what Dorothy Day took to heart. Um, okay. So <clears throat> I mentioned, you know, we talked about Dorothy Day and her lifelong devotion and disciplined practices to fully live out her faith and these are grounded in Catholic, so what we call Catholic social teaching, right? Um, I just wanted to briefly because we, I think it's important to remember, you know, they talk about Catholic social teaching being our best kept secret and that's what Peter Warren is saying, right? We need to have a newspaper because People aren't paying any attention to the radical teachings of the gospel. We have to have some way to communicate this to the masses. Dorothy, can you help me? Um, and she said yes. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, believing with all your heart, as Dorothy did, about the dignity and worth of every single person, right? For Catholics and for people of many faith traditions, that's, you know, we are created in the image of God. So Dorothy Day, if you read her diary uh, and her readings, I love reading her diary. That actually was the gift. Part of the gift of this invitation, Karen, was uh, for me to go back and read her diary, um, which is, uh, I wish I'd read it back when I was discerning. I think I made the right choice. But uh, boy, was it uh, real. <clears throat> Just the ups and downs, as you can imagine. Really very uh, profound. But anyhow, but really seeing Christ. Really seeing Christ in the people that we serve. 
I know that when I was a social worker in one of the housing programs, <laughs> when I would drive up, there would be a lot of the residents who lived there. Where it was almost like, you know, kids, <laughs> they had their noses to the glass <laughs> waiting for me, you know? And I... <laughs> And finally, so I'd say, okay, let me put my stuff down. Yeah, let me just get a drink of water, you know. And uh, and I and I actually said, hey, everybody, just you just give me five minutes before I come. You know, I'll see everybody. And that and and you know that's a good that's a good practice because I had to be ready, right? I had to sort of prepare myself, you know, which I tried to do so that I could create a sacred space with each and every person. Um, but then I, some, on my better days, I would go in and I would be saying, oh, there's, there's Christ, there's Christ, there's Christ, right? But that's, and that's what Dorothy Day did every day. So remembering that we're created, each one of us, in the image and likeness of God. And by the way, it's not just the people we serve, it's each other, right? It's, not, it's our colleagues. So we don't just have to be nice to the people we serve. We also have to be nice to our colleagues. At, at the social work conference, I was talking, looking at Alice, we were at a social work conference together, and I was talking to my colleague about an ethical practice that she was, she was kind of violating one of my colleagues who was Muslim. Uh, he kept, she kept touching him. And he, and this is a dear, dear friend, I think you know what I'm talking about. And he, in solidarity with his wife, uh, I mean, he could touch anyone that he wanted. That's you know, but his wife, in their uh, tradition, could not. So, in solidarity with her, he didn't touch people. He didn't uh, touch women, and didn't have women touch him. And he's very nice about it, all right. So, my colleague keeps touching him, and I'm saying, I'm just like, hey, you know, come on. And, and he he laughs. I'll touch my heart. You know, when I when he greeted her, he said, I'm touching. I'm greeting you. I'm touching my heart. And I was trying to explain this to her, and then later at lunch, and she wouldn't stop doing it, and I didn't want to embarrass him, and he was very gracious. So at lunch, I said, hey, I wanted to tell you about when you're meeting so-and-so, and I was explaining this to her, and she goes, well, Linda, that's, I said, I said, it's culturally competent practice. She goes, well, that's science. And I was, uh, no, it's about how we are with one another, too, you know? It's about, we're all created in the image of God. We all... We, 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 don't, these, we don't have some, one set of practices with one set of people, another set of practices with another set of people. Let's try to be consistent. So anyhow, the second piece is the common good. Right? The common good from the Catholic tradition speaks to, it's the sum of all social conditions that allow people to flourish and thrive. So, what did they care about the social conditions? Right? Predatory practices, oppressive practices of work, are oppressive, right? Don't allow people to thrive. Force people to work many jobs. Don't make them available to their family. Don't make them available to their community. Don't allow them to participate participate in all of these spheres of our lives, right? Um, so, and that's just one example of how we have to create conditions in all of our communities that allow people to thrive and then we are helping to create the common good, right? And the reason, let me just also add that the common good, human dignity and the common good are interlocked because you can't realize your dignity in isolation. You realize your dignity in community. 
So if you don't have a condi the community conditions where you can thrive, where you can participate in life, where you're not grinding at your job all the time, um, and feeling like you are the subject of your life, you're not able to realize fully the dignity of who you are. So that's what the common good is referring to and what Dorothy Day was trying to uh, help cultivate. And I told you, she already had that special affinity for workers, workers' rights, workers' dignity, um, because work... As, as John Paul II talked about, work is the social question, right? It's how we produce, how we co-create with God. That's one of the ways, one of the important ways in which we are part of continuing God's creation. Solidarity is that firm um, commitment to, to persevere um, with others. It's, it's more than empathy. It's more than sympathy. It's, you've heard the statement, there before the grace of God go I, right? That's, that's, that could be me, right? That could be me. Solidarity is, there go I. <laughs> Solidarity is, that's me. Right? So, when you see homelessness, somebody on the street begging for change, that's telling you that your world is broken. You know? Your world is broken. And um, subsidiarity is the idea, it comes from the Latin term, subsidium, which means to help. And it's about how, how we order the functioning of society, that, that whoever, you know, whoever is closest the, to the condition should be able to act for themselves. So whatever I could do for myself, I should do for myself. <laughs> whatever a family should do for itself, a family should do for itself. Whatever a community should do for itself, the community do. You know, you shouldn't have a higher order coming down and telling you how to live, right? Or telling you how to be. But sometimes when the conditions are so bad and the injustice is so great, you have to have a higher order position, a higher order, a positive role for government, let's say, to, set, to create the conditions for the common good to, to exist because the injustices are so great, right? The deck is so stacked against the lower order issues. And finally, the preferential option for the poor is the, is the principle of Catholic social teaching that most people associate with Dorothy Day. You know, they think about her and they think she is the living example of the preferential option for the poor because here she is, someone who opted for a life of voluntary poverty <laughs> which is the ultimate in solidarity, right? Is, you know, I could make a different choice, but I'm going, to, I'm going to choose the life of poverty so that I will be in the struggle with you, like really in the struggle with you, really in the struggle with you. Um, having the same worries. I mean, they were evicted from one of their houses, a Catholic worker, right? They were evicted. They had bills. They had bill collectors. They, uh, they had all kinds of Catholics that were upset about what they were writing in a Catholic worker newspaper. Um, they had bishops, you know, the, the, in the New York diocese. The bishop, they weren't, the bishops, the diocese wasn't paying the grave diggers well, and, and the grave diggers went on strike. And Dorothy joined the grave diggers and said, hey, you need to start paying your grave diggers better, right? 
So um, she uh, she really was trying to help the, the church live up to its potential. And I realize we're all a church. I, I know that we're all a church. But she's trying to help the hierarchical church live up to its potential. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't realize time was flying. I haven't even gotten to homelessness. So let me quick get to homelessness. <laughs> Gee whiz. Um, so I'll answer these questions because... Uh, well, maybe you could answer. What lessons can we draw from the working day to end homelessness today? Can somebody just three? Can somebody just mention one? What's a lesson that Dorothy Day teach us about ending homelessness? It's our problem. I mean, being solidarity. This is not <clears throat> those those people who can't get it together. This is our problem. This is our problem. This is our problem. Well, let me, remember I mentioned that, does anybody know what the number one cause of homelessness is? Not, not the experts in the room. What's the number one cause of homelessness? Lack of affordable housing. Yes, who said that? That's great, that's right. Most people don't say that first. Lack of affordable housing is the number one cause of homelessness. It's the number one cause of homelessness. It's not mental illness, although mental illness is experienced in people who are homeless. It's not addiction. Although addiction is experienced in some people who are homeless, right? but not everybody struggles with these things, and people who struggle with these things can live in housing, and that's what the evidence-based part of the, the, the bill for this talk is to tell you that housing first is an evidence-based practice that can end homelessness. And as you know, we have a significant housing crisis across the affordable housing crisis across this country. That's not just impacting the poor or so the poor; it's impacting the middle class, right? We looked at it. I tried not to give an. I don't have a lot of academic slides because I didn't want to give an academic talk. But the Joint Center on Housing Studies at Harvard University has that has a lot of wonderful charts. Not wonderful, but sad charts that shows how people who are in the middle, upper and middle incomes are now facing severe rent burden. Severe rent burden means that you're paying more than 50% of your income in rent. The standard of paying for housing should be 30% of your income in rent is what you should be aiming for, and that's the HUD standard for what's affordable housing. So we have a severe burden. This is just a slide that shelved. This tells you the housing wage, how much money you need to earn in each of your states to afford a fair market rent to better apartment. There's no state in the country at the current minimum wage that where you can afford housing by working a normal 40-hour work week, right? We need, people need to be able to work and go home and participate in their lives. Work is important, but it's not the only thing. I want to show, despite the housing crisis, this just shows that we are making progress with homelessness. We are making an impact with homelessness. It is possible to end homelessness, and the better slide to show it is to slide on veterans' homelessness. We have cut veterans' homelessness in half since 2009. We have cut veterans' homelessness in half since 2009. Why do you think we've cut veterans' homelessness in half? We've got city housing, but why, why veterans? Anybody know? GI Bill. No, they're not getting, GI Bill isn't covering housing for homeless veterans. 
Anybody can guess why veterans? They served their country. They served their country because they deserve it. There's political will to help our veterans, and there should be. Absolutely. And the beauty, the good news is, because there's political will in this country to help our veterans, it's enabled us to show that with a housing voucher that pays for your housing, you can live, you can end homelessness. We can end homelessness for veterans. We can end homelessness for non-veterans if we have the political will to invest in the housing to do it. We can do it. It's being done. And you know what? Your community, this community, the Portland Gresham Multnomah County has ended homelessness for veterans. You have done it here. And I went to dinner tonight and I heard some phenomenal ideas about ways to address some of the affordable housing shortages in this community, which you are, Portland, is the number two, number two accelerating in gentrification, number two city in the United States for accelerating gentrification. So we can end 78, Portland isn't the only one that's ended veterans homelessness. 77 other communities have ended Ended veterans' homelessness. We can do it again and again and again and again for everyone. Um, I'm not going to get into this. <laughs> the whole the point is, we can we put people into housing, right? People who have mental health issues, people with addiction, can't thrive in housing. You're holding them hostage if you wait until they're housing ready. This slide shows the housing ready idea. Oh, they can't go into housing until they've gone from the street to the shelter to the treatment to traditional, you know. What we've shown through evidence-based practice is you don't need to jump through all those hoops because it's actually hard to get sober in a shelter. It's hard to remain sober in a traditional housing. I mean, there's so many issues related to, that make it harder for people to overcome their challenges. What Housing First has shown is that you put people in housing and then you wrap around the services to support them, right? And to make sure that they, that they thrive. It's cost effective for those of you, not you, not this group, but a lot of people say, well, they don't deserve it. They have to earn their way, you know? It's not fair, you're rewarding them for their bad, bad choices. So if that, you know, I don't agree with that, but, but if that doesn't, if you feel that way, the cost argument, it saves money, you know, to house people first, and then help them overcome their difficulties, it's more successful. It's not for everyone. I don't want to say that housing first is the panacea for all problems, but it is, we need to, it is a primary way and a significant way that we could be ending homelessness in the country, and it is the primary reason why we've ended uh, homelessness for veterans, because there's been political will, there's been federal money available for BASH, Veteran Assistance Supportive Housing vouchers, and we put veterans in homes. And the estimates are that it would cost is probably a little bit more than this, $20 billion to end homelessness once and for all in the United States. I heard, I read this morning that Bernie Sanders is talking about investing $32 billion to end homelessness. So that's pretty exciting, and maybe others will follow. But and I, this is my only terrible, awful, terrible slide. But I want to just tell you that right now, the federal government is already subsidizing housing. But they're not, it's not for the poorest. 
It's for upper income people. The mortgage interest deduction. Now look, I know. I mean, when I first heard about, you know, many years ago, somebody say, oh, we need to redirect the mortgage interest deduction funds. As a homeowner, I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I'm counting on that. I really count on that. But then if you really, you know, you really start delving into it, you start realizing, oh my gosh, you know, we're spending 60 billion on mortgage interest deduction and 84% of it goes to households with over $100,000. So we are subsidizing housing for upper income people, right? And you know, it's just, so seven million households with incomes of 200,000 or more receive a larger share of federal housing spending than uh, than the 509 million households that have 50,000 or less. So this is just one example. I haven't talked about our military budget. You know, Dorothy Day, who's a total, you know, a peace activist, she'd be saying, we have a military budget of $690 billion. We could probably use 30 of that, you know, to address our housing problem, our homelessness problem, right? So what I'm trying to say is, you know, we have an answer to ending homelessness. There actually is money available. You know, we don't have to invest it in military. We don't have to invest it in walls. We don't have to invest it in a lot of things that we're currently investing our money in or, you know, proposing. And we could be ending homelessness for the half a million, 600,000 people who are living on the streets today, right? Who are the people who are created in the image and likeness of God. You, you Portland, Portland is doing a lot of great stuff. This is your governor. These are some of your healthcare leaders who have invested $21.5 million in some low-income projects here in Portland. It's pretty awesome. But I guess from a, from a Catholic uh, social teaching perspective, when I think about housing first, you know, the question is, well, is housing enough? Housing ends homelessness. Housing ends homelessness. But is ending homelessness enough? Is that, it's sort of like a basic needs approach. You know, I, from a Catholic perspective, we want to do more generally than just meet basic needs. We want people to thrive and flourish. We want people to thrive and flourish. So it's great to get them a home. Let me tell you, a lot of people that I know who, when I was in DC, who got their housing first option, they spent the night with their community instead of you know, under the bridge, instead of their new home. And why? Why did they do that? Huh? They're connected. Their connectedness, their community, right? So, so one thing that we really need to be thinking about, and I'm thinking about your, some of the stories about that you were talking about in terms of building community, is some one of the, I think, the flaws, the challenges, and some Housing First programs are doing better at overcoming this than others, is that you know people who are homeless often become extremely isolated and lonely and more depressed because they lost their community. So we need to figure out, as we're placing people in housing, how can we also help them build community and meet, you know and stay connected or reconnect with communities that are healthy and stay connected to the communities that are healthy and will help them thrive. So that's a, so. And Dorothy Day would say the same thing. These are all pictures from different Catholic worker, you know, environments where community is 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 critical to to the Catholic worker ethic. Um, I guess the last thing I want to say uh, is is just to say the Garaventa Center's mission. Uh, 
is to explore the fruits of faith, reason, and imagination that constitute the Catholic intellectual tradition to illuminate and enliven the working of grace in human communities. And I think that it seems quite fitting that an institution, a center with that kind of a mission would invite a talk on Dorothy Day, who I think it lived uh, a, Catholic, a great stellar example of the Catholic imagination, right, in bold, who was driven by her faith, and even though housing first was not an evidence-based practice back in 1933, 34, um, she was a prophetic voice, a woman ahead of her time. And that's your, that's your reason. That's your Catholic imagination, that's your faith, and that's your reason all together in Dorothy Day. And I'm so sorry that I went on too long. I told you I wouldn't, but I did. So <laughs> that's it, and I would look forward to any questions or any ideas that, you know, Portland is, is kind of a hotbed of good stuff happening. So I'd love to. I learned about a couple new things uh, today, tonight at dinner from some folks who came out to join us. And does anybody have any comments or observations? Or if you could give one piece of advice to social work students who are getting ready to take on these challenges that you've described, what's one practice that you would encourage? them to to take on um, you know the most I feel like probably the most important practice not for just our students but for all of you is to talk to people <laughs> like listen actually engage in meaningful conversation I have an exercise in my one of my homeless <coughs> classes and I really talk about it as practicing um, practice, the practice of human dignity the practice of honoring human dignity or given the book that Karen uh, Wrote, you know, the practice of beholding, right? So, so I think what's really critical is that we get to know our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness, and um, and really see them as people, see them as, for the Catholic students, you know, see them as Christ, and uh, and listen, um, and and really follow their lead, and encourage them. That's the other thing is when you're advocating for justice. Really partner with the people that you're serving, the people that you're, you're with your neighbors. It's not just your voice, it's their voice. But that's part of what we uh, need to, we need to be in this together. Not us for them, it's not them despite us, but that our world is broken because their world is broken. You had a comment in the back. Oh, well, our healthcare system doesn't serve hardly anybody well. Those of us in some a certain demographic are doing pretty well. But in terms of mental health, oh, yeah. it's very difficult to get good mental health in the United States. For the homeless, I imagine it's next to impossible. Have you seen any programs that homeless people can actually get the kind of services they need so that they can function without scaring themselves and everybody they meet? Yeah. No, I think you're right. Uh, certainly, and I mean, we didn't have enough, right? But I was in, when I was in Washington, D.C., you know, I worked for 10 years for, for an organization called SOM, so others might eat. Yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> no, SOM. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> um, well, SOM had an outpatient, you know, we had outpatient mental health care, outpatient behavioral health care. 
Um, and there, so it was only one of many organizations, right, that offered mental health care. Not enough. Not enough. I'm currently living in Harrisonburg. Oh my gosh, the dearth of mental health services, um, and really there's al almost nothing for addiction. So I think that that's, um, that's, a, that's, that's a really important issue too. Uh, but I do think we need to get people off the streets first, right? And it's amazing what can happen in terms of some of the quieting, right? The quieting of some of the voices. The lessening, once you get over the community issues, right, or if you do this in a way that's uh, where you're creating communities of care, there is, uh, you know, not, not, for somebody with severe and persistent mental illness uh, that needs medication management uh, for schizophrenia or other, or other uh, those kinds of challenges, um, perhaps it might not quiet as much, but it's, housing really, I mean, there's a lot of research now uh, about, I didn't bring all those slides with me, I could have, about housing as healthcare. You know, the health outcomes improve just by living in, a house, right? Um, a home. So is housing first a program that has like a, a apartment buildings that have lots of people who have come in from the street and this is their community? No. Typically, most, I mean, you know, I think different jurisdictions might do it differently. But generally, the way the model is designed is for, it's the scattered site model because it's wanting to get away from the saturation of a, a building, you know, with lots of people who are uh, recovering or trying to overcome homelessness. So the typical model is setting people, and this is also part of the challenge and part of the community challenge, right? Is that when you're putting in people in scattered site apartments all over the city or all over town, then you really don't have a community, you know? And, and in fact, you, you kind of want to withdraw because you don't want your neighbors to find out about your story for fear that they might try to put you out, right? So, but generally, so that's why for some of the scattered, that's why in my conversations with some of the Housing First providers is we'll then figure out a way to form community, like get buses, pick people up, help them, you know, have national, you know, through their churches, through the communities that they might be joining in those locations, but also bringing people back together, right, to help them, hey, how's it going for you? You know, kind of the peer support. So, I mean, there are different ways of doing that, but generally it's a scattered site model. Um, when I worked at SUM, SUM is, was, is not a housing first provider. They were a housing readiness model. Um, and and uh, so we had buildings of 93, uh, 68, and these are all people who were coming out of homelessness. And there was um, a comfort, I have to say, you know, the people who lived there seemed really happy, grateful, that the person who was our neighbor actually knew and could relate to the struggles that they had. People would sit out in the community room and, and talk about, oh, here's what I did, and you know, and, and just, there was not the sort of uh, fear of stigma, fear of being found out, because everybody knew that everybody was struggling, you know? And actually, I think we, we could all, maybe the scattered site would work if we could all admit that we're all vulnerable. <laughs> that we've all struggled, right? Because the, the issue of vulnerability and struggle is not unique to people experiencing homelessness. But people who are experiencing homelessness don't have, that many of us have, is a family, you know, and family <coughs> connection that support us when we, when we succumb to some of those vulnerabilities. Yeah. So you um, shared with us about the housing first model, $20 billion it would cost to end homelessness, and maybe, um, you know, through housing first agencies or governments, you know, directly running things or whatever, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have Dorothy Day, who 
was very distrustful of government, was an anarchist, was about personalism and direct action. And I'm wondering, as you look forward to ending homelessness, which, like, how you see those two different paths, you know, do we need both? Do we need one or the other? Yeah, um, yeah that's a great question. And she actually wasn't as much of a, I mean, she, all of the things you're saying are true. Peter Morin was more the absolute, absolutish, no government, total personalism. It's all about us being our brother's keeper, right? That's, that really, in fact, <laughs> after the first issue of the Catholic Worker newspaper came out, where Dorothy Day was really talking about the structural problems, you know, uh, he thought it was too political. And he felt very uncomfortable by that first issue. He was so uncomfortable that he had his name removed from the front page because he was afraid of what she was, sort of the way she was speaking truth to power. That wasn't quite the vision that he had, right? But I think you're right that there is this, that, that Dorothy Day did have sort of this, this distrust, right? That there was an element of that, for sure, and would certainly prefer that we be responsible for caring for each other, that we should be creating communities of care. And I think that, um, and I do think that we do need both. I think the problem is too big, though, um, for it to be a totally voluntary activity. Um, and also, uh, you know, the structure of our economy is quite different. You know, we have multinational, you know, we have a different kind of way that our economy and our, that life is structured that requires some bigger, some bigger lifts that a Catholic Charities or So Others Might Eat or a Lutheran Social Services or a Salvation Army just doesn't have, even on their own, you know, even, even, even collectively, all those incredibly wonderful, fabulous groups that we still need. And we haven't even talked about racism, right? You know, like there are some communities that aren't well served by some private entities, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but uh, but there are certainly blind spots that that are evident. That's a great point. I think we're going to take a pause here to yeah. thank Linda. There's, we probably need to do this more than just once a year at Dorothy Day's birthday. There's a lot of problems to unpack, but thank you for walking with us <clears throat> with two feet of love to, to at least see what the scenery looks like and what, get a, kind of our heads around the challenge. Um, I, if you are a student who's here as part of a class, the sign-ups for that are in the hallway out there. We have Dorothy Day birthday cupcakes in the back and birthday candies. It's not a, you, you can't come to a birthday party and not have a birthday cake. And I know that um, Linda and Hannah and Sarah and, and probably Alice and Kevin, uh, if you'd like to engage in some more conversation a little bit more intimately, um, they'll be very generous with your time. If you need to take off now, um, have a great evening and thanks so much for being here.